Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Today, we're focused on an overlooked segment of undergraduate students, those who are already parents. Universities aren't typically set up to serve non-traditional students like these, but the reality is they represent a fragile segment of our society that is desperately working to improve their circumstances, and they could use a hand up from colleges and universities. David Kroom from the Ascend program at the Aspen Institute joins EAB's Misi Fairfax to talk about changes that are urgently needed on college campuses to better support student caregivers. So give these folks a listen and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Misi Fairfax and you probably are quite familiar with me. I'm thrilled to have on the line with us today, David Kroom. He's the Associate Director for Post-Secondary Success for Parents, the Ascend Program at the Aspen Institute. Now, thank you for joining us today, David. Would you please just tell us a little bit about yourself and your role at Ascend? Yes, Misi, uh, thanks again for having me on this podcast. Um, I think first thing I wanna say, just to give a, a guest or listeners some context is that I'm the son of a student parent. So this work is something that is personal to me, matters a lot. I, I remember growing up in the back of, of classrooms with my mom when she was getting her associate's and bachelor's degree at FIU and Miami-Dade College in South Florida where I was raised. Um, so that's one thing, but in my professional context, um, I'm the, as you mentioned, the associate director at Ascend at the Aspen Institute. And our work, the work that I lead and have been leading for the last four years has been focused on um, post-secondary students who are parents. So since joining Ascend, um, I've had the, the privilege of helping build, uh, I guess, a movement or a field focused on students who are parents. We have various projects engaging different stakeholders, including colleges, um, state and federal policymakers, and importantly, student parents themselves. Um, so I'm happy to be here today and tell you more about some of the work that we're doing and some of the trends that I'm seeing among um, our student parent work and how it connects to the broader post-secondary field. Oh, thank you for that, David. And I'm so excited to, to dive into this conversation. Uh, one thing we consistently hear from our campus partners is, the, is that need to have and to hear expertise from us and others about ways to support all identities and all students. But as you know, still today, many leaders aren't aware of who their students actually are, who is showing up and who needs the support. So today, as you've, you've heard, um, we're going to discuss identity and needs of student parents. Now much has been said in the news about the struggles of our caregiving and parent employees that they're experiencing in terms of balancing life and work. Now we know approximately 73% of US employees are caregivers and they spend an average of 24 hours a week on these caregiving responsibilities. This is according to Harvard's Business School's survey of U.S. employees on caregiving report. Now, in response, employers are making accommodations and they're doing so actively, actively making their businesses, companies, and institutions more inclusive, which is great, right? This is all great news, but student parents don't just work alongside us. There are many who are also going to college, right? More and more frequently in jobs that are offer limited flexibility. So campus leaders need more conversation, guidance, and recommendations around parents who are students themselves, and they need to understand the accommodations that the students, that those schools need to meet. So David, I would just love for you to kind of give us a lay of the land. How many parent students are there? Where are they? What do we know about them? Yeah, happy to. So um, student parents, and this is using 
uh, NIPSAS data from 2016. Unfortunately, the federal government's a little delayed uh, when it comes <laughs> to data, but um, we know that they're somewhat about 20 to 22% of the total undergraduate population. So, mm. um, and looking at this data, I'm, I'm gonna be referencing focuses on those in baccalaureate and associates, or bachelor's and associate's degree pathways. Okay. Um, so about 20 to 22% of the total population, one in five is what we usually say, about 4 million um, stu uh, students or student parents. But I think importantly, there's a lot of really important intersectionality that, uh, that occurs among this population. Mm -hmm. um, we know that student parents are majority first generation students. Uh, we know that they're majority women of color. Uh, for example, if you look at all black women enrolled in these um, associates and bachelor's degree pathways, 40% of them are mothers. And so that's a significant population um, of women of color. Um, and that's just breaking down by black women, native women are the, the next highest up at, at uh, 36%. Uh, of those women are being our parents, our mothers. And so uh, important to, to just um, state that piece. They're also working full-time, they're enrolled mostly part-time in their post-secondary pathways. And then importantly, I know one of the themes that we're gonna get to today in this podcast is around, um, around community colleges and um, student parents are, are overrepresented in community colleges. Um, if you look at the, the pie of 100% of student parents, 42% of student parents um, are enrolled at, at public two-year institutions. So we're talking about a population that is typically enrolled um, at, uh, you know, very much has, has presence um, within community college contexts. And we also know too that, um, you know, as kind of already alluded to uh, around, you know, employees in the US, our systems are not built with caregivers in mind. Sure. Not just not work, workforce systems, post-secondary systems, they were not built to support those who are caregiving. And that's something that we're really trying to address within our work here at Ascend. Um, student parents exist in every on every campus and in every community. Um, and so we're trying to make it known and trying to share this data, do some case making, some myth busting around this population um, in order to underscore the fact that if you care about these populations, you care about students of color, first-generation students, adult learners, uh, that student parents need to be uh, on your radar. Yeah, and that's a, that's a really good um, push that you put there at the end because, it, you know, all the ones that you just rattled off, student parents is usually the one that we hear the least about. And I, I'm excited to hear uh, more about the work that you've been doing over the last four years to get that up. One of the things that you brought up that was interesting to me is that you mentioned that there were uh, majority women of color who fell into that. And one of the interesting stats I saw, and I was just curious um, and wanted to talk a little bit more about surprising data as well, is that some of these uh, student parents are also single as well, right? Or single parent households. Um, so I just wanted to get your your sense in terms of what, that's, what that means differently versus student parents. And then just get a better sense of like, what is it that additionally that student, that campus leaders should know, or how do they get to know these student groups? Yeah, so um, as, as part of the student parent sort of context, it's about 70, 30, 80, 20 in terms of women to men. So significantly more women enrolled um, who, are, who are mothers as compared to fathers. And of, the, of those women, uh, there's a significant population uh, who are, are single mothers. Um, and so in particular, you know, recognizing the fact that single mothers are, are some of the most vulnerable populations in this work, uh, we're really talking about individuals who um, are in 
you know, dire need of resources, not just in financial, but also non-financial resources. I think something that we, that's surprising in the data or some, some trend that I think is really unique to student parents and how they, I think, differentiate themselves from other adult learners of populations is this concept of time poverty. The fact that student parents have, um, per the research, about half the time dedicated to academic pursuits as compared to non-parents is, is really, really jarring. And it's again, because of a significant number of student parents that are, sorry, single mothers and single parents that exist within this work. You know, in this, in this context, I think of actually one of our parent advisors, Waukesha Wilkerson. Um, she's a mother of three. She lives in, in the Inland Empire in California. Um, and she's been fully enrolled in online pathways throughout her uh, post-secondary journey. And uh, she started trying to do for-profit, didn't really work out. Um, and she eventually was able to enroll at Coastline Community College and get her credential there. And she recently, which I'm really excited about, completed her, her bachelor's degree at Sacramento State, uh, which has a really uh. great program focused on, on, on parents. And, uh, you know, she has three kids. She's working full time. She's been enrolled for the most part part time throughout her, her journey, which has been for several years, much beyond the four years uh, that are typically, I guess, experienced by college students. Um, and I'm always in awe, honestly, on how she even finds the time to, to dedicate toward academic pursuits because she uh, is literally working full time, raising three, three, three children um, and has all wow. these other elements on her plate. And so um, so I think the thing that, you know, in this work, we want to really make that the norm, the idea that we're talking about individuals in general, not just in student parents, but adult learners in general, who with, of which college is something that is important to them, but it's not even like in the top five of the list of things that they have to do in order to be survive and to be to sustain their families, right? So I, I think that's something that we need to really think about is how to modify that sort of sentiment around college being the primary and, and ensuring that colleges are supporting uh, student parents to be fully enrolled and fully subscribed, uh, recognizing the fact that they have so many other uh, things on their plate. Um, I think other things that I think are really interesting in terms of surprising things, even, and I just mentioned Waukesha, but Waukesha, I think her, um, she told me her GPA was like in the high threes. Like it was, she has yeah. a GPA and that's actually not uncommon right. for, for student parents. Student parents actually have higher GPAs than their childless peers. So I think that's the thing that's really interesting as much as we talk about some of the, um, some of the barriers that they face, the fact that uh, they're dealing with childcare and childcare, you know, exceeds the cost of uh, public in-state tuition for higher education in over 40 states. Um, so childcare is a very expensive provision. Um, That's right. uh, we know that student parents are also dealing with mental health sort of concerns. We did some uh, research with the JED Foundation uh, oh, yeah. last year. And what it showed with that parenting students faced um, extreme stress indicators, um, including higher rates of basic needs insecurity, higher rates of trauma, and much less of a sense of belonging on campus as compared to their, their non-parent their non peers. Um, and then the thing that was really great about this too, in terms of the work was, uh, was something that, uh, a, a trend that we thought, but it kind of came out of the work, was the fact that we saw that younger uh, parenting students actually are struggling more, significantly more than older. So there seems to be even just more of 
of a, a pronounced stigma for teenage parents as compared to um, older student parents. And so just some of those elements like that that we see in the data that I think are really interesting to sort of uh, think about as colleges are, are building um, supports for student parents, building robust wraparound supports, connection to community partners who can provide those supports. So yeah, I think time poverty, the, the uh, mental health pieces, but then also from the asset framing, the fact that even considering all those barriers, they still have higher GPAs uh, than their childless peers just showcases the fact that this is a, such a, a motivated population to succeed because of their families. Absolutely. And what stuck me, and I actually was um, was going to, you brought up stigma, and I think that's a an interesting and, and tough piece as well, because as we know that in our conversations that we've had outside of this podcast that, and then just across campus leaders, we know that there are, they noted, and you noted that this is a population that is wanting to be served, right? And we know that campus leaders are concerned about increasing current and future enrollments. It seems like there's a solution here, especially if we know that many of these students' parents are having these higher GPAs. It sounds like they're inspired not to do well for them, just for themselves, but also for their children and their families. Um, what's your take in terms of what, what college leaders could be doing as they're thinking about the enrollment and recapturing those adult learners and others who might've either stopped out or maybe had not come to their campus at all yet? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, and you know, maybe this is because of the work I do, uh, but I, I believe that this is a, a win-win for many colleges. Um, we know that we know that enrollment has continued to decline, right? And it's and that, you know that shock was fairly unique too. Typically, you know, when economic shocks happen, um, college enrollment you know increases, but this shock with COVID was such a unique um, sort of economic shock that we've seen enrollment decline. And I, I posit that, um, and there's some data supporting that. Um, that parenting sort of element has been challenging for many. Um, and that's partly why we're seeing um, much of the, not, not, I'm not gonna put, pin all of the enrollment decline on parents alone, but I think sure. that they're definitely driving, one of the populations, subpopulations driving that enrollment that enrollment decline. Um, and this is supported by some data that came out um, or some research that came out in early 2021. It was uh, some Gallup data funded by Lumina Foundation, uh, which looked at caregivers. So it looked at both those who are caring for young younger children, but also for doing elder care. Um, and what they saw were that um, college students who provide care to adults or children were far more likely than those who are not uh, parents or caregivers to say they have considered uh, stopping taking courses in, in a six month period, which looked at fall of 2020. And that um, was for 40, 44% of that population were considering stopping out as compared to 31% of the non-caregiver population. And the thing that I thought was so interesting about that research was that the significant relationship between caregiving and parental responsibilities um, in consideration of pulling out of those courses persisted even after controlling for race, uh, program level, age, gender, marital status, income. So it was really that caregiving element that made it where the, these um, individuals wanted to stop out of their pathway. And so I, I so that, you know, looking at that data and thinking through again, what I hear anecdotally from our parents in terms of how challenging um, COVID has been and um, it continues to be, right? It's not over <laughs> um, in terms of technology challenges are, you know, I think there's 
also assumptions made that virtual learning is something that all parents want. In the case of Waukesha, she did want the, and it actually went through her entire pathway um, through virtual education. But in the case of Ariel, one of our student fathers, um, he's made it very clear to me that he needs the, the on-campus, he needs that experience of being in person. That's the way that he learns. He, uh, he needs to be able to see it, to touch it, um, to experience it in order for him to feel fully engaged. Um, and it's tough for him to do so because he's the father of two, two children. And so I, I think that um, we also don't want to make assumptions that, you know, just online education is what parents need. It's basically helping them, helping, giving them, you know, a different diverse experience of modes that they believe are best suited for them and letting them choose what modes uh, I think would work well for them. But digressing from that, I think um, in terms of your question, um, I think this is a, a boom for enrollment. I think that this is a win-win. I think we're, we know from the research um, around the two-generation effects that are, exist if parents are able to complete their credentials, what it means for their children. And, um, and I think that colleges should be really considering this research and, and uh, sort of acknowledgement that COVID has impacted not just all populations, but student parents in particular, and really build those sorts of supports, um, such as um, you know, providing resources and uh, uh, financial and non-financial resources um, to really bring those individuals back to the table and hopefully get them through their pathway. Yeah, and one of the things that you noted that I just wanted to double down a little bit, you talked about the decreased propensity for many of these students as well to be swayed by for-profit institutions. I think part of that is because the way of their messaging and what they're actually, the way that they're attracting their students and what they're, I mean, I, I'm sure many of us have seen that commercial where it's like 35 million Americans have stopped out, get it America, right? And you see him at his laptop doing that. But like you said, that doesn't work for all of these students. But there are some lessons learned in terms of what they have effectively done and what these campuses have effectively done to think about those resources. Because even as you say that, and we talk about the intersectionality that many of these students' parents have, we also realize that there's more students than ever who have these needs. So. I want to kind of jump forward a little bit to think about how should community colleges, how should institutions think about supporting their student parents? What does that really look like? Um, especially beyond, and I'll push you a little bit here. We know childcare, we know we definitely need childcare. We know it has never filled the gap. And we know that most institutions, when they do have some kind of federal childcare facility or another, it may just be able to have a handful of student, uh, a handful of student parents children who can attend maybe, you know, maybe 30 to 50 slots. Um, so I'm just really, really curious, and this is definitely coming from our membership as well. What, what can we do? How can we support them? Yeah. Um, so I think that the needs of student parents, although unique because they have children, are not so varied and so different that they differ, I think, extremely from what adult learners need in general, right? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, just to simplify it into, into, into things that I believe, but to buckets that I believe are important, um, first off is data, right? So something that I want to make clear is yes. that um, we need more data around parenting status. Um, you know, Achieving the Dream, uh, which um, is, you know, Community College Advocacy Group, I'm sure many of your, your audience knows, mm -hmm. you know, they did an internal survey of their, um, their community colleges a couple of years ago, and they found that only about a quarter of them were tracking parental status, right? And um, that's something that we, we really want to make uh, progress on. We, we, we continue to 
underscore the fact that parenting status, being a parent does have impact on one's ability to complete their post-secondary credential. And so it should be tracked just like um, income, race, uh, gender, uh, first generation status, all of these other sort of elements that we know are variables that we know have impact. And we want to we want to track and know that information because we want to best target resources to those populations. We, we believe strongly that parents should also be within those conversations. And I think that that conversation also extends to the larger sort of movement re in, in the last decade or plus around basic needs and security, right? And the fact yes. that um, again, another point of intersectionality, the fact that, and this is using Hope Center data, that parenting students um, experience food and housing insecurity at much higher rates than um, non-parenting students, right? And so, again, kind of underscoring the intersectionality of this population. So with that in mind, data, and we need to have data not just around parenting status, but also ensuring that we're knowing, we're looking at those momentum statistics that we see around persistence, retention, completion, you know, how that's impacted. Um, and then, of course, money you know this is not this is not new um i think uh my old my old supervisor would, used to tell me that there are not not a lot of new sort of ideas in, in post-secondary and higher education and i agree with her on that because what we do know is that if we target uh finance uh, money emergency aid scholarship um to these individuals that they use it in a very rational thoughtful way and it keeps them enrolled in their pathway and so i think any way that we can continue targeting resources scholarships um for emergency aid but then also too you know there's examples at the state level where in california for example a couple of years ago they created a specific uh cal grant which is their state um need-based aid program uh, for students with dependents. And so students with dependents qualify for slightly more Cal grant as compared to those who don't. And so those are sort of resources that we want to see. We want to see student parents have access to more money. And then importantly, um, so data, money, and then yeah. case management advising, right? Um, we know that if a person has access to a human to uh, to engage with, to help them um, make their way through these really complicated systems, um, like accessing, or even, even as simple as tutoring take up or advising, but then also more complicated in terms of accessing wraparound supports like um, SNAP and TANF and uh, childcare subsidies that states may offer. Though we know that, those, that parents are enrolled in those um, systems uh, and they need to, and these systems are very complicated. They might have different eligible requirements. You know, it's a really challenging, it's unfortunately very challenging to be uh, per, a person experiencing low income in this country, right? And so, right. Um, and so um, we want to see, you know, systems like that, that are providing at robust case management and advising to student parents to help them access these key resources. And so we have some really great examples of this work um, and, and out in LA in Los Angeles. Uh, Los Angeles Valley College has a, a family resource center has been doing this work for the last uh, 20 plus years. And the great part of the interesting thing about them is they don't actually even offer childcare at that site. What they offer is, or they don't, they themselves don't offer it. It's offered by another group on in the campus. But what they offer is, is community, space, access to uh, mental health supports, um, access to advising. Um, they, they, they offer all those additional sort of supports that student parents need in order to feel a sense of belonging, and it helps them get through uh, that uh, their programs. Um, we've also seen some really great work happen here on the East, on the East Coast um, at, at CUNY, so the University of New York. Um, they're known for their Fatherhood Academy, which is an amazing program at three community colleges in the CUNY system, where they literally 
literally are providing um, space again for fathers to come get advising, uh, build community. Um, you know, that social capital element is something that's really important again for parents to feel a sense of belonging within institutions. Um, and so, you know, those two examples that I share with you don't even offer childcare um, mm -hmm. as, as a potential element. There are, there are more than, uh, and mind you, those systems, LAVC and CUNY do offer childcare in other ways. I mean, they have childcare centers um, within their institutions, but the programs that I've mentioned um, are not childcare centric. They're actually centered on all the other sort of supports that student parents need to be, um, to be um, in these pathways. Um, and so, so I think there's, yeah, it's more than just childcare, I would say, but a childcare I should also not discount is a very important provision within this work too. Yeah, and I think that's fair to say too, because I feel like a lot of folks think the way to start in this work is, okay, they have children, let's provide childcare. <laughs> um, but that that's part of it, but that sounds like the, the larger is about the data, the statistics, making sure you have the money, making sure that you can provide them for those basic needs. And that makes a lot of sense. I, as you were thinking through, I, when you were providing your examples, it made me think of, and it's actually, it would just be a natural expansion of some of the programs that many community colleges and then just some universities are starting to, to do. Uh, what came to my mind was thinking about NOVA because NOVA has always had thinking about the kind of one-stop shop and getting in there. So there were the, the, the social services benefits that many of their students needed and helping them through that process but it should not stop there. And so as our colleagues are thinking more and more about how to do this work, I love what you shared there, tracking that data, um, making sure that the housing and food insecurity, making sure that you have something there to, to, for those gaps, um, addressing those research, the resource concerns are huge. Um, but one thing we haven't talked about, and you said in your opening, and, I, and so vital to this work, you talked about the voices learning from and hearing from, from student parents. I'm gonna do a plug because I've, I had the chance to listen to a number of the one in five uh, podcasts. They produced 15 episodes over 2021. I've only gotten through three of them and I've had goosebumps and just emotional in many ways because you just realize and you can hear the struggle and you can hear the tough choices that many of these student parents have to meet um, or have to, and, and what they have to go through. And so I just want to, to hear from you. You talked about a, a couple there. You talked about Ariel. You talked about, and I don't want to butcher her name, and River, oh, Waukesha, Riverside, Waukesha. and then Waukesha. Yeah. Um, but I would love to hear more about what you've learned and, and heard from a lot of your student um, parents and then even champions. From what I understand, you might have advisors as well in this work. Yeah, no, thank, okay. thanks for asking. Um, and yeah. Um, yeah, thank you for the plug. I mean, the One in Five podcast is excellent and uh, really amazing stories that we've we've helped cultivate um, through that. But our parent advisors are really, you know, the heart of this work. So something that's a key tenet of our work here at Ascend, um, and I should actually maybe even just quickly mention like what Ascend is. People are like, what is that? Uh, <laughs> but Ascend is a program, a policy program at the Aspen Institute. Um, we consider ourselves to be a catalyst and convener for systems, policy, and social impact leaders um, who are working to create a society where every family passes a legacy of prosperity and well-being from one generation to the next. So our focus is really on family. And, and so this work that I do here um, through the Post-Secondary Successful Parents Initiative is a fairly unique sort of opportunity to really see and cultivate this, this field of post-secondary around parenting. Um, and so um, 
Something that's key to our work here at Ascend and one of our sort of tenets is around engaging parent and family voice. And so as part of this work that I do, we've been really lucky to have two cohorts of parent advisors and we're actually in the midst of finding our third. And those parent advisors are student parents who are at various stages of their post-secondary journeys. Um, some have stopped out and re-engaged. Um, some, we've had some major wins recently where some have completed their post-secondary credentials. Um, and. And really what they do is advise our efforts and make sure that we're doing work that's rooted in their lived experience. But then also they act as external advocates um, and have spoken at a number of different forums uh, on behalf of student parents, just sharing their stories and their narratives, but also being very solutions oriented. And so something that we did as part of our, our second cohort of the parent advisors um, was a participatory grant making fund. So we actually had them work with us to build, uh, what we call the Parent Power Solutions Fund uh, and they gave money to six um, uh, 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 six nonprofit organizations focused on student parent success as well as imbuing parent voice into their models. And so uh, we have, uh, as I mentioned, Waukesha and Ariel, who are, are, are two of the uh, 11 that we've had in our second cohort. But I think just one thing I want to mention around parent voice into solutions, I, I want to just call out one of the Solutions Fund winners, which was Raise the Bar. It's an organization based in Minneapolis and L.A., helping do scholarship, emergency aid, and other supports for single parents um, within those two areas. And, you said they, uh, they were the winner this year? They're one, the, they one of the winners, one of the six winners of the Parent Power Solutions Fund, the Participatory Grant Making Fund. Congratulations! And, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the work has now, uh, it's actually just ended recently, yeah. um, but, they, but because the grants were pretty short. But the thing that they did, which I thought was really unique, uh, and, and what we tried to foster was they use the resources to bring two of the parents they've served in this work onto their board. So now they have like board mm -hmm. seats specifically for parent um, folks, parent advisors. Um, and they've really engaged those parent uh, advisors since they know the programming very well from the lens of receiving the resources as uh, they've used, they've engaged with them and utilized their voices and improving uh, the resources and, and actually incorporating even more resources um, for parents that are, you know, for student parents who are getting resources, money, non-financial resources as well from Raise the Bar. And so I think that's just one example of where we have been fostering and want to continue to foster in this work. Um, the idea that student parents, they're not your traditional student coming straight from high school who's like, you know, trying to find themselves. They're raising children. They're very, they have a lot on their plate. They're very rational humans and they have ideas and they have solutions um, that we need to tap into if we really want to ensure that this work has legs and that it's going to be durable. Um, and so I think that's something that I, I wanted to just call out and explain because it's, I think it's unusual for colleges to think about student voice in that way and really developing and codifying solutions. But I, we've had a lot of great success here at Ascend in doing so. Yeah. And actually, that makes me think of even just an additional recommendation for folks who may be listening, because a lot of times we end up having these kind of advisory councils um, where students, there may be one or two student leaders who might be part of that. And this is just another opportunity for folks who or on our listeners are on the line who are thinking about, well, how do you determine who that student is that might be sitting on that council or that board and providing some insight in terms of supports that students may need? What is that diverse identity? What are the intersections of identities that might match up with the students who you're increasingly looking to serve? That could be a student parent. So that's definitely one to think about as well. Definitely. definitely. Uh, <laughs> and then one thing I wanted to to circle back around on, we have commonly talked about um, on this podcast about 
about ripple about the pan- we called it the pandemic ooh excuse me the pandemic ripple effects and this is about how the work we do on behalf of our students will further benefit our community and our society as whole now along those lines you talked about student parents being and helping to to stop the intergenerational poverty and you talked about the two gen approach model now that's a bold statement um and i know that there but at the same time i hear about the um I hear about the supports and the level of supports that folks are providing that that I honestly can back this up, but I would love for you to share a little bit more about how you're talking about that and seeing that change of um, and stopping, quite honestly, eliminating intergenerational poverty through these types of programs. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the first thing to state is um, we know that college degrees will ensure and in, in, in the cases of parents, you know, or just adults in general, will probably double their lifetime income, right? So that's an important thing to note mm-hmm. um, if they're successful and able to, to get that credential. We also note in some of the two-gen sort of interaction effects, excuse me, in that um, if a parent's income increases by $3,000, that there is an effect on their child's future earnings. So $3,000 increase leads to a 17% increase in the child's future earnings. And so that's just an example of a two-gen effect that we see in this work. And that, I think, clearly sort of um, builds the apparatus or structure as to why we care about this. We, we, we know that, um, and maybe see even a post-secondary credential as being um, a major vehicle for parents to quickly um, and durably access uh, the sustaining family sustaining wages that they need um, in order to be successful to uh, reach their dreams. So something that we talk a lot about is our, our work is not just focused on trying to get parents from point A to B, but it's actually about um, meeting parents with a dream. It's actually, and that's actually a, a line from one of our parent advisors, uh, Janine, um, that that's, it's really important to us that we don't, we, we're not doing this work in a transactional way. We really think about um, how to imbue parent voice into this work, how to engage with their um, solutions in order to ensure that this work um, is durable and will be lasting. Um, and not just for the colleges, but also for the parents themselves and for their families. And I think that, again, ties back into my story, right? The reason why I do this work is because I grew up in the back of the classroom uh, with <laughs> my right. mother and, my, and, and I saw post-secondary as being sort of her way um, to ensure that um, she was able to raise me. And my dad was also uh, I'm a, in a two-parent household as well. So my dad was also very supportive of her um, in that journey. And so I think that's just kind of speaking again to the fact that this work really um, is impactful and can be impactful for multiple generations. Absolutely. Well, I do want to ask, and we touched on it a little bit, um, any advice or recommendations for institutions, we're talking about community colleges um, here, that are resource constrained, um, any creative solutions in terms of even maybe it's just getting started with the work, um, or, or maybe if there's different levels, if you want to share it, or just different ways to think about just how to improve today and some long-term goals they can think of as well. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, actually, funnily enough, just a week ago or so, I was on a call with um, a historically Black college uh, president um, who who took part, this college took part in some of the work that we did at Ascend focused on um, trying to get more colleges to build and sustain student parent uh, practices within their institutions. And something that she shared with, with me was 
that they were, when they saw the numbers, they were overwhelmed. <laughs> they had significantly yeah. more student parents within their, their, their institution than they expected. But because they're resource constrained, um, they were like, how do we, you know, we gave, you know, we, it was a self-directed sort of project because of COVID. Uh, right. But um, so, you know, we, we really, would like to have more resources in that work, but um, you know they were kind of like, okay, this this is something we see as valuable, but we're not going to be able to do this right now because we have so much more on our plate, right? And I think that that's important to note. <laughs> like childcare, for example, is a very expensive provision to offer from anyone, including a college, right? And so I think one thing that we've been seeing more in the work are these sort of community-based solutions. So we don't. I, I would say that in this work, I don't feel that colleges alone need to be the only stakeholder offering these sorts of robust wraparound supports to their students, to student parents in particular. They, We know, especially for smaller colleges, they're going to have to engage with the community, right? Um, something that we've seen um, at a community college in Texas, then um, this is occurring, this was occurring prior to COVID. So, um, so one thing that we saw was the fact that um, they they recognized that their student parents really needed drop-in care, but they really weren't uh, in a place to offer those sorts of, that sort of care, but they were able to partner with their local Y. And what they did was create a, a so basically just offer a space uh, within okay. their institution for the Y to come in for free and offer drop-in childcare to those parents that needed it. And so, you know, those sorts of creative solutions are things that we really see value in and hope that um, colleges can think about, you know, ways to engage some of the local providers of childcare, other wraparound supports um, that could be, you know, and also including state agencies too, right? I mean, we, we see some really beneficial work happening within state contexts. Um, and I think that they can be also in local contexts too. And they can also be important stakeholders beyond the sort of other no local nonprofits or community-based agencies or organizations um, doing this work. Yeah, and I think that's a key part to say that this this work should be done in tandem with the with not only the student parents who should be guiding us in terms of the needs that they need, but also connecting with their communities and all those services. Those partnerships with our students and with those communities, the social services are vital and important. Now we're toward the end of our time, which is sad for me because um, I just love listening to hearing about your work, David, but just wanted to kick it back to you. Any parting words or what you would like to leave with us, uh, leave with our listeners today? Yeah, um, I think the main thing for me again in this work as, as kind of being the student parent advocate I am in this, in this space is the fact that, uh, you know, just underscoring that this is an intersectional population that, um, you know, I've just seen so much more movement, especially since the events of 2020 and the racial reckoning and other sort of conversations uh, within higher education. And admittedly, higher education can be very cyclical, right? So, you know, sure, the yeah. conversations that occur, but right now in this time, as if, uh, as with these sort of uh, renewed focus on students of color and low-income individuals, and especially coming out of COVID, which was a massive um, impact on every system, but especially among colleges, is that um, the student bodies have changed and they have been changing over the last 20 years. But um, in order, we're not, I'm not sure that getting back to, you know, the, no the normal before COVID is going to occur. There might be a new normal and that new normal as as you know, should have been even prior to uh, to COVID was the fact that there are a lot of adult learners, especially student parents within these contexts, and they've left your pathways because right. they weren't being served effectively. But if you want to bring them back, if you want to uh, increase enrollment within this, you really need to look at 
uh, student parents. You need to look at the, 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 the identities that they share, the work that they're doing, because they're a really amazing population. And I think that this work is extremely mission forward, right? Colleges care about um, being that font for economic uh, security. And I think that what, what more to think about in terms of um, not just serving an adult, but serving their entire family um, and serving their, their future children and, and all of those elements, I think is a really powerful sort of mission oriented um, element. And so just wanting to underscore again that student parents matter. This is a population worth investing in. And I hope that um, they see this sort of podcast and this opportunity as sort of a call to action. Absolutely. And you said it best. Uh, those are powerful words, and I hope ones that will catapult our listeners into action. Thank you again, David, for joining us today. This has been a wonderful time spent with you. And thank you all again for joining Office Hours with EAB. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we offer a condensed version of our annual State of the Higher Ed Sector Address and break down the five biggest threats and opportunities facing colleges today. Until then, thank you for your time.